Hello, what's good people? Welcome to episode three. Who could believe it that I've made it to a third episode? And this is a bit of a milestone for me in some ways because uh, with my last endeavour into this space, I made it to two episodes and that was it. So we're making progress. That said, let's get started. Um, the funny thing is, this is... I'm still yet to have a title for this podcast so this is the third episode that I'm recording um by the time I release the first I think I'll have a name but um that said let's get on to what we're going to be talking about today so the first thing is um I wanted to talk about is something that's kind of close to me and relates to my current experience at the moment which is that um, my wife recently passed her driving test applause cheers I am very happy I'm free freedom <laughs> i'm free from having to um give lifts and being the only person that drives in the house now the flip side to this is that and what i didn't really consider was that it now means that i need to let her know when i'm using the car and so that's kind of like a new dynamic for me getting used to this idea that um the car isn't just mine to use as and when i see fit but i do i need to concede i do need to consider does she want to go somewhere? Does she have things to do? Are things happening in her world that she might need the car for? And so, um, at the moment, I don't use a car that much. I use it maybe one or two days a week when I drive to work because sometimes I'm a bit lazy like that, even though the work isn't that far away. I'll cycle in summer. I'll tell myself I'll cycle in summer. But um, yeah, because she, we now both drive, and obviously, you know, there's that new driver kind of excitement where you want to drive everywhere. And so, I need to be more mindful of that. So, that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, but what I want to talk about a little bit about was the driving test. Now, I passed my test a a long time ago, over 10 years ago, um, whatever, 10 years ago. <laughs> well, over 10 years ago. Um, but what I want to talk about is was the preparation for the driving test. And so um, hopefully she won't mind me saying this, but it wasn't her first time taking the driving test. Let's just put it that way. Um, but yeah, she. one of the things that I did was to sort of do driving lessons with her to try and help her. And man, was was that an experience? Um, it was definitely more of a labor of, uh, definitely a labor of love. Um, but I realized that being a driving instructor is definitely a different skill set. And obviously, I've known this. You know, you need to know how to teach. But um, what I realized is that sometimes the way people learn isn't necessarily the way you want to teach. And the way I was taught was quite, quite. Um, quite a hard and rigid kind of way and that works for me my driving instructor used to often tell me if you do that on your test you're gonna fail and for me that was motivation to make sure I didn't do it on my test and that um I made the effort to to be aware of that when it came to my driving test um I passed first time I don't say that as a as a badge of honor because I think I barely passed I think I was two minors away from failing but um I didn't care because I passed and that, that's what I was happy about but um, yeah, my wife passed with only two minors. So I'd like to think I have something to do with that. But yeah, um, just that process of of doing driving lessons with people is not an easy thing, especially with um, like, you know, your wife and you've got obviously marriage dynamics that exist, but then also um, me trying to apply sort of just my way of teaching dynamics. And it made it a, a challenging experience, shall we say. So she was still doing driving lessons at the same time because um, I felt that that made more sense. I'm not prepared to, to help her pass in terms of the things that I know about driving and the way that I've adapted to driving. I know that the way that I drive on a day-to-day basis 
probably wouldn't allow you to pass your driving test, even though I, I think I probably could pass the test if I did it again. Um, yeah, I've picked up habits and, and ways around things and kind of, um, ideas about how certain things are done, like positioning myself on a roundabout and what I think is the safest thing to do versus what I think is the driving test appropriate thing to do. And so I was very mindful of that. And so she did driving lessons at the same time. But um, I also did like extra lessons with just me and her to try and um, help prepare for the test. And I think that was a really good thing, a really good combination. It saved a lot of money as well because driving lessons are expensive now. When I was learning to drive, it was around 15 to 20 pounds an hour for a lesson. And you could do our lessons. Now she's learning to drive it something like... Um, they only seem to do double blocks, and so it's like forty pounds at a time. Plus, if you want to do it on the weekends at certain times, it's extra. It's like it's like having like a one-to-one phone contract back in the day, where you know it's free on weekends and free after a certain time. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just surprising to me that the cost of learning to drive now is so much higher than it used to be. And off the back of the pandemic, what is also an interesting thing that's happened is trying to get a driving test is really difficult now it's not like it used to be if you want to get a driving test then you need to kind of factor in at least a couple of months possibly even maybe even longer to get a test particularly if you want it in a certain location um yeah it's definitely something to uh to consider like when it comes to that whole driving test thing it's not it's not like it was when i was when i was um doing my test and getting cancellations and rebookings i mean the whole test day in itself was was crazy so the first day she had a test, um, it got re- it was rescheduled because of, um, I think she didn't feel like she was ready, which made sense. Then the day that it had been rescheduled to, there was, so it was rescheduled. Um, and then the day it had been rescheduled to was, there was some sort of, I think there was industrial action. I think that's what it was. There was industrial action. And so the test was automatically rescheduled, I think, the following week. So we get the following week we get there. And we go there to drive in the test, test center, and there is one examiner there. And I, I should I should get her to tell this story. I probably will at some point get her on the podcast to talk about that. But there's one examiner at the um, ex- driving center, and so he, is, we're both there at the same time. And there's, us and there's like two other groups of people. And so okay, well, one driving instructor, and he brings out a piece of paper, a little post-it, and on the post-it note he's written a number for us to call. And so what's basically happened is that the driving test was cancelled. But we didn't receive any any messages. And if you try to book a driving test, what you'll find is the process you have to go to through where they tell us, you know, um, don't contact us, we'll contact you if anything changes. But in this case, they hadn't contacted us. And then there was a whole lot, lot of calls that we had to do, a whole lot of back and forth. If you try to call through to um, the driving test people about your appointment, there was no one to speak to. So what my wife did, which was quite clever, is she called the theory test people, someone picked up, and then she got rewrited to where she needed to go. But So anyway, after sort of loads of back and forth, ended up getting the test rescheduled for, I think it was the following, that was a Friday, it was the following Monday, um, which was a bank holiday, which was kind of fortunate in some ways, um, but it was just a really stressful time because she's obviously prepared for the test. I'm thinking, yeah, she's got, got the test. I've already bought like a, congratulations, you've passed the card, you know, just, positive belief and having faith um in her ability to pass and it's just uh yeah it's just crazy and so we come back there on the monday she does her test she passes and you know all is right in the world once again and, and there's lots of joy one of the things about passing which i think is really interesting though is that so you do this preparation for your driving test 
you drive on A, sometimes B roads, maybe up to 40, possibly 50-ish miles an hour, but generally roads that aren't that fast. And this is all the more interesting if you're someone that's um, learning to drive in London where so many of the roads have a 20 mile an hour speed limit. And so you'll find that for the most part, you probably spend most of your time driving around 20 miles an hour. But the moment you pass your test, you can go on a motorway. And that's always seemed a bit weird to me, this idea that you kind of prepare for driving on sort of slower roads and in town. And I get the reason for it, you know, you don't necessarily want um, learners on the motorway. That's probably quite a dangerous thing. But at the same time, I think there's something to be said for there being something in between. And that brings me on to an accident I had when I first started driving on the motorway. Uh, but I'll speak about that a little bit more later on. What I want to talk about now is buying your first car. And so after I passed my test, obviously, um, and so this is kind of becoming an episode about new drivers and maybe the new driving experience. But after I passed my test, um, obviously the first thing you want to do is get a car if you haven't got one already. Some people do have their cars um, already. And I think it's great if you're in a position that you can kind of do that. You have somewhere to keep it. Because it was weird, a bit weird for me because at the time, um, no one in my household at the time drove. And so, yeah, there was, it was just the idea of kind of buying a car and, I don't know, I suppose buying a car and insuring a car and not being, um, not having the full license. I was just, I wasn't really sure about that. So anyway, passed my test, bought a car. My first car, as I think I mentioned before, was a Red Rover 214 SI 16 valve and it was a three door and it was like the sort of the bubble shaped rover and I absolutely adored that car I spent way more money than I should have on it um that car saw at least two interior changes if not three but definitely at least two it had a went from a standard interior to a rover vi interior and then an mgzr interior um which was red as well which matched the outside of the car if you know you know, by the MGZR and uh, sort of bucket kind of seats that it had. But yeah, I really um, adored that car and spent way too much money on it. Um, but yeah, what I'm interested in actually is, so I, I used to think that, you know, it's your right of passage when you um, pass your test that you kind of get a banger as your first car. And obviously banger is, is a relative term depending on what your position is if you're in a position to get a new card then you know it's excellent but i always kind of assume that everyone kind of gets a banger because there's every chance in the world that you're going to kind of mesh up your first car a little bit and i think that um i've revised this a little bit in that i think maybe as you get older maybe you become a bit more sensible um if you push your test a bit later on you're less likely to drive around like your hair's on fire as i did when i got my first car you know, everywhere drove as fast as possible, which is really stupid, not something that I recommend. But it's one of those things that you're excited, you're young, you've got a car, you've got access to the world and, um, you know, open roads, so to speak. But yeah, I used to think that everyone that gets a new car, everyone that gets their first car, it's going to be like a, a bit of a banger and then, um, you know, you kind of learn to drive in that car and then you get a nice one afterwards. But what I seem to see is like this finance thing kind of... um. You know, as it, just as I mentioned in the last episode about people sort of financing cars and getting, you know, new wheels and a, and a map, and that's sort of been the way the industry's going in terms of modifying cars. A lot of people get, like, quite nice cars as their first cars, and I think this is quite an interesting thing. I think if you're younger, you probably, it makes sense to lean towards getting something, either, if, if not at least cheaper, but something not so premium, just because there is every chance that with your inexperience, you're likely to have an incident or an accident or put some scrapes in it or maybe some dents. And if it's a more expensive car, then it ends up being quite a costly endeavor to get that sorted out. And so some, I think there is a temptation 
in with particularly with what I see. I'm I live in London, so um, I'm basing it on what I see in London. I think that people kind of everyone wants to kind of have like these sort of lifestyle and and flex and kind of show um no show out a little bit. And I think that there is a I don't want to say a propensity or a leaning, but I I get the sense that um. People spend maybe a bit more than they should on cars. Maybe they go to uni and sort of get a student loan and get something on finance that they probably can't really afford. And this is one of the interesting things. When it comes to cars, it's easy to kind of buy a car in many ways and to pay for whatever it costs, maybe even to um, finance it on a monthly basis or PCP or whatever it is, your, the buying mechanism you're using to get the car. But... Um, all the other costs that go into running a car. And so this is one of the things that you kind of don't really think about. You think, oh yeah, freedom, going to be on the road, going to be driving. And petrol was a lot cheaper when I first started driving. It was like around, um, what was it, 82 to 86, something like that. I remember the first time petrol went up to a pound, everyone was losing their minds and there was like protests about it and everything. And now it just sailed past that and petrol was well into the sort of one forties. I think it might even touched 150 or 60 at a point. It's coming down now to about 140, but... um, that's sorry, that's one pound forty per liter. By the way, in the UK, petrol is priced per liter. Even though fuel consumption for cars is advertised in miles per gallon, and I kind of feel like that's an intentional misdirect because that doesn't make any sense. Why don't they tell you what the miles per liter are? Because that will give you a better indication as to how fuel efficient or inefficient the car that you've got is. But yeah, when you first start driving, you know you want to drive everywhere and you um, just get excited by the idea of ownership. But if you haven't had a car before, then the costs can be something that kind of come out as a surprise. So it's definitely a couple of things to be mindful of there. And it's things like how much insurance costs. And this was something that, um, interestingly, I'll call myself a car guy from a young age, even before I had a car, but I'd never really considered how much it costs. Only once I sort of got the car. Um, did I have insurance at the time? I think someone had helped me set up like a temporary insurance. And so I drove the car home and I started looking for insurance in earnest. And this was kind of like um, sort of early internet comparison-ish times, possibly. Wasn't maybe as widely available as it is now. But um, I was looking at different places and for at the age of, I think I was 18, 19? What year were you when you first started uni? I think I was around um, 18 when I first got got my first car. And um so yeah, I think I was 18 when I first got my car and looking for car insurance was a real eye-opener. Living in London, um, not living in a particularly great area, probably quite a, yeah, not really a, a nice area. So I lived um, at the time on Asbury Estate, I don't know if you know that, in London. it's a, It was famous for being the backdrop of the Channel 4 advert at one point where they kind of got like newspaper and stuff and had it sort of blowing in the in the wind, um, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, had the longest residential housing block in Europe. So don't live there now, obviously, moved out. But um, at the time I lived there, and so that area didn't have the greatest of profiles in terms of um, like crime and stuff like that. So insurance was shockingly bad. I remember looking through so many different places, and I remember, um, I think it was Endley that offered me insurance in the end for the princely sum of, I think it was either 1,400 or... It was one thousand around one thousand four to one thousand two hundred pounds for third party only insurance on the rover. And I'm not sure if that's really legal. If you're allowed to have third party only, so third party only insurance basically means that um, if 
I crash the car into something, then it's the thing that I hit is covered, basically. If I hit somebody else's vehicle, they're covered. But um, it's not third-party fire and theft is usually what you hit. It's usually fully comp or third-party fire and theft. In the case of third-party fire and theft, if your car's stolen or it is, um, I suppose, catches fire and burns down, then your car's insured. But with third-party only, you are only insured for damage to third parties. So, um, like, to other people and other people's property, basically. Um, which, yeah, was, which was interesting. So I had that for a year. But then after that first year, it started to come down a little bit, but it comes down really slowly. I remember thinking that, oh, once I hit sort of 20, it's going to really get cheap and got really excited. It's like, not really. Once I hit 25, it's going to get really, really get cheap. Not really. Once I went into my 30s, then it's going to really get cheap. Mm, kind of. And I think that's suppose now it's kind of started to get down to reasonable levels. Maybe partially to do with the risk profile of living in London. But yeah, car insurance is still not really that cheap. I mean, at the moment, I pay, I'm paying around... Oh, five or six hundred, five hundred, and I've got plenty of no claims bonus, um, no accidents within the last five years. Yeah, it's just I, I don't even bother protecting my no claims bonus anymore. But that's a different story. What I will say though is, if you are looking for car insurance, what something I recommend highly is going to MoneySavingsExpert.com. So yeah, Martin Lewis, that same guy, go to that website, and they've got a process that you can go through to help you find a really competitive quote. And so it's things like tweaking things like um your um job profile again this isn't lying it's not fronting it's not pretending it's it's a legal process so picking a job profile that um relates to something that you do i think a good example of this is some job, jobs that can be argued that are quite similar so coach driver versus bus driver can have quite different prices different prices for insurance even though they're very similar um and again similar sorts of things whether you say you're an actress or an entertainer you know you could argue there's a quite similar um job profiles or roles but when it comes to insurance and how it's calculated the price can be quite different by a few hundred pounds so he's got this this thing that allows you to pick a job title that relates to what you actually do and so i do encourage you to do that and this process that you can go through where you go through the different comparison websites that like go compare um money supermarket and all these things and that really like puts you in a good position to save a lot of money and that's something that i do that's one of the few, i think a few things that i consistently on top of each year that i make sure i'm Sort of hunting around and searching around to try and find the most competitive insurance quote and then when you kind of get your quote sometimes you can even call up and get a bit of a reduction there and so i do encourage you that if you are um yeah insuring a car first car any car um yeah do that sort of process that he talks about on the website that's really cool um yeah insurance is an interesting thing something i'll speak about a little bit more in a moment um in relation to insurance and accidents but one of the things that I think is good, when you first start driving, you want to drive everywhere. You're excited, you're gassed. It's cool to be on the road. And this was me. I used to offer people lifts to places just so I could drive because I wanted to go somewhere. I'd even like go out in the car and just go for a drive just because I enjoyed driving so much. But something that's interesting I found with this was um, be careful what you ask for, especially in regards to giving people lifts. And so um people started to just call me when they wanted to live somewhere and then at first this was really cool because you know i enjoy driving and i said i enjoy driving i'll just let me know I'll, I'll drop you to wherever and i would do this but i would never charge petrol money but then what i noticed is over time this became like an expectation that oh yeah just yeah he likes driving just call him and he'll dra- drop you here pick you up and drop you there and then people would call me at start seemingly um well, at the start, it was at sensible times, but over time, it became stupid. Like people start calling me at 11, 12 o'clock at night, 
um, as if I was their only hope to get home and, you know, calling me from all kinds of random places. And at first I would do it, but then, you know, it's my mates and stuff. But then after a while, I kind of said to myself, this isn't really making sense. Like, um, I'm doing more mileage and burning more petrol for other people than I am for myself. And after a while, I kind of said to myself, well, I think I still enjoy driving, but I was like, well, I'm not going to be paying for everyone, petrol for everyone to drive all over the place. People have gone out, spent money, had a great time, but then I'm paying out of my pocket to drop you home. That makes doesn't really make sense, you know. If, you, if we're going out together, that's fine, of course. Um, on the odd occasion where maybe someone's stranded and genuinely in a situation where they need help, yeah, of course. But if you're literally just calling me to be your Uber, and that kind of became it became like that at a point. People would get dressed up and say, yeah, I'll come to my house. I'll come to their house, um, pick them up. I'll wait for them to get ready. I'll wait for them to come downstairs. You know, wait that you do. Oh yeah, I'm ready to go now. Are you sure you're ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Get there. I'm waiting outside for that 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes sometimes, even a bit longer. Um, yeah, and then you go downstairs and they come downstairs, drop them to where they're going and then I just go back home. Like, I had no intention of going out. But what I started to do is charge people lift tax. And so, if you wanted me to come pick you up, cool, I'll do it, but I'm going to charge you petrol money. And that kind of balanced things out a whole lot. So I noticed that people stopped calling me so much at that point. And so maybe if you're somebody that does like to drive, um, do consider the lift tax. Yeah. They don't want to pay it, they don't have to pay it. They're going to get an Uber, that's fine, do your own thing. But if you're calling me out of my house at stupid o'clock, well, no, that wouldn't happen. I'm a married man with, with, a, with a child, you're not going to call me and unless it is genuinely an emergency and just, just to drop you to a party or around the corner because you want to go somewhere. But um yeah, that's that's uh <laughs> that was that was that. So speaking about insurance and accidents. Definitely was insured. Always um been insured. Well, I say I've always been insured. On my f- one of my first insurance policies, I think it might be the one before Emsley. But um what I had was this 10 month bonus accelerator thing and so the idea was that it's a bit of a I don't want to call it a scam but it's a bit of a misdirect because the idea is that it, you pay for this um, 10 month policy and then after 10 months they give you a year's no claims now what I didn't really consider was that the reason why the policy was cheaper is because it was a 10 month policy and so the policy didn't um, the policy was cheaper because you're cutting 2 months off your insurance now when you get to the end of that 10 months only that insurance company can um give you the 12 months can on that can on that on that 12 months in terms of that whole year bonus um no claims bonus so um i'm not sure this is the same in every country but in the uk for every year that you have insurance whether it be home insurance car insurance and various other t- types of insurance for every year that you don't claim on insurance you don't get any money back but you do get a no claims bonus and this no claims bonus goes towards making your insurance cheaper. And so the idea is that the longer you hold insurance continuously without claiming on it, the cheaper it should become in some ways because what you've shown is that you are a um, safe and uh, driver and that you don't have accidents, essentially. And so the idea is that you're rewarded for that with no claims bonus. Sometimes you can do something called protecting a no claims bonus, so you pay to protect it. I personally don't really think this... I don't really believe in it. I'm not saying don't do it, but you know, by all means do your own research and look at it and look at the numbers. But what I kind of thought about was that, well, if I protect my no claims bonus, I only really protect it with that insurance provider, in my mind at least. Again, if I'm wrong about this, please do let me know in the chat or in the um, comments. But um, if I protect my no claims bonus and have an accident, 
then I still have an accident on my record. And so if I go somewhere else, even though whether my no-claims bonuses are protected or not, um, I think you, you don't ever lose all of it. Let's say you have five years of no-claims bonus, you have an accident, then you go down to, I think it's two or three, something like that. But you don't lose all of it, whether you protect it or not. And even in either case, you still have an accident on your record. So it still affects your insurance. So I'm not sure... I'm, I hasn't really been clear to me how I benefit from protecting it because I still have to declare the accident when I go to get my next policy and that still affects it negatively. So I wasn't really sure that there's a point in paying the premium to protect my no claims bonus to hopefully make my insurance a bit cheaper than it would be had I not protected it in the case of accident. I'm not really sure that the economics of it or the, in the real world it actually works out, particularly if you... Um, move between insurers and I recommend moving between insurers because if you stay with the same insurer you basically get ripped off every year that you stay with the same insurer generally speaking your insurance gets more expensive it doesn't go down so you're not really rewarded for your loyalty I think that might, might be changing in the coming years but um, time will tell but yeah speaking about that first accident so um, this is one of the things I think is again interesting about driving where you get your license and you can drive on the motorway and so one of the things that I find myself doing um as someone who likes to drive was going to Sheffield so one of my friends um good friend of mine he's actually had some interesting cars something I'll I think I'll probably feature him at some point because he's got an M4 at the moment but um yeah he was at university he went to Sheffield and we went to Sheffield because road trip why not and on my way to Sheffield, we're on the motorway cruising in a free car convoy. So he's got a Fiat Punto at the front. I think it's a red one. Fiat Punto Sporting. Another friend of mine had a also had a Rover 214 SI. His one was green. So similar spec to mine. But I like to think mine was a bit better because I had um, I had lowered it on MGZR springs. I had an MGZR interior. I had an um, aftermarket back box. And um, I had like a cone for air filter. So it sounded a little bit more bassy. And I also had a blue LED light in my interior, interior. Don't judge me. But anyway, so yeah, I felt like my car was a little bit better, but that's by the by. So we're in a free, this free car convoy, driving on the motorway, having a great time. I think it was my first time on the motorway. I was nervous, but also excited because you get used to driving on the motorway after a while. But um, new driver and suddenly traffic comes to a standstill. I mean, a dead stop. And so I'm looking at the road, I'm going a bit quickly. I don't think we're doing, I don't think we're even speeding at that point. I mean, there's three of us in driving in a line, which is always a bad idea. So if you're ever you know, going with people on the road, don't drive in a line behind each other. It's not a great idea. Um, so we're driving on the motorway up to Sheffield, as we do, having a good time. Um, one of my, my, my boy, who is in this passenger seat next to me, who's actually the brother of the guy going to Sheffield. So his older brother is going to Sheffield um, University and we're all going up there to go and um, see him. So we're going up there with him. So we're on the motorway, it's free cars, you know, having the best time, blazing music with my flip-up um, head unit that I had at the time, because I thought that was cool. I had a head unit that came out up and played like DVDs and stuff. But yeah, so I'm driving down the motorway and I see standstill traffic in front of me. And so I'm thinking, okay, I better start slowing down. Well, did I know it was standstill at the time? I don't know. But traffic starts to slow down dramatically. And I see Callum's brake lights. See my mate in the front. He's in the Punto. Sees brake lights. Okay, he's slowing down. Then see the green the, the green rover, my other friend. Um, he's slowing down. And then I'm, I start to slow down. Okay. Slowing down, braking. I'm looking at the way the slowing down's happening. I'm like, it feels as though the cars are coming up kind of quicker than, than, than I'm used to. And so 
I start breaking, but I don't really break with anywhere near enough force to stop in time. And by the time that I realised that I need to break hard, and my car didn't have any ABS, um, it's too late basically. And I hit the brakes, everything locks up. I think I tried to like steer a little bit, but obviously I didn't. As much as I love cars and stuff, I didn't realise that um, when you have a car without ABS and you hit the brake hard, all that happens basically is your car turns into a roller skate and it just slides straight forward, even though you might turn the wheel. And so this is what ABS does. ABS basically releases and clamps, puts your brakes back on very quickly and that allows the car to turn so you can still steer when you brake really hard. But car had no ABS. Didn't even realise that. Hit the brakes. So Tyson, or my friend in the green car, who's also um, a new driver, he goes into... So, so the first car, the Prodotto stops well ahead of the um, other cars. I think the car in front of him might have been a Beetle. But he stops and it's fine. And then the green rover goes into the back of the Punto. And then my rover goes into the back of the other rover. Oh, my friend in the green car jumps out and goes, no damage, no damage. And I'm sitting there in my car. As my car hit his car, I saw the bonnet just slowly begin to rise and crumple up and just this feeling of pain and then my friend in the seat sit next to me kind of wakes up and is like oh what happened <laughs> did we crash and I was like yeah and so then I'm like in disbelief I'm sitting in the car looking at the bonnet just like obviously like kind of cre- creased and kinked up and I don't want to get out of the car and then my friend in the green rover jumped out and he's like no damage no damage and I'm just looking there thinking well you haven't seen my car and um yeah um, guy in the put in the front, he gets that. So what I was talking about is the first accident that I have. And so the first accident I had was on the motorway. Um, I think that people should be prepared for motorway driving before they pass the test. I recognise that learning drivers on the motorway is not a great proposition, but maybe just before you have your test, there should be some way of kind of um, getting at least motorway driving experience. So story goes, basically, I was with a bunch of my friends. There's three of us in a convoy rolling to Sheffield. One of my friends goes to university at Sheffield. None of us go to university there, but we all wanted to drive because of summertime and, hey, vibes. So what happens is we're on the motorway cruising as we do. I don't think we're even speeding, but we're driving in convoy. So three of us are in a line, and I don't ever recommend doing this. You know, Driving in convoy is not great either. So three of us are driving in the motorway. Um, Definitely keeping up with traffic. Not sure how fast we're going, but um, I believe it was the speed limit. I believe. Um, we hit suddenly, sudden slow-moving traffic, as happens on the motorway sometimes. And so um, my f- friend who was in the car in front, which was a car in front is a Punto. Punto Sporting. I think it was like a P-Reg or something at the time. car behind is like a T-Reg um, Rover 200. 200, 214 SI. Same car as mine, literally. Rover 214 SI 1612. His is green with tints. Mine is red without tints, but has modifications, so I think it's a little bit better. But that's by the by. So we're going on the motorway now. Um, obviously, my friend in the first car, who's experienced, sees the slowdown traffic, starts to slow down. Friend in the second car starts to slow down. He's um, also sort of similar to me, not a particularly experienced driver, but he's been driving for a little while. He's a recent driver. He starts to slow down. Um, I start to slow down. And I just remember seeing brake lights and thinking... These cars seem to be coming up a little bit quickly. So I started to brake, but I didn't really brake hard. And again, this is me being used to driving in um, in the city. And so at a point, I begin to realise that I'm not going to stop in time. I'm not going to stop. And so I hit the brakes really hard, um, lock up the car, and that basically means the wheels stop moving at this point. And I didn't know that my car didn't have ABS. 
And so I hit the hit the brakes. Uh, I think I remember trying to steer, but the car not doing anything. There was, a, there was another time where that happened. That's sorry for another time. But I remember trying to steer, thinking I can do this, and the car just was a roller skate, just went straight. And so, um, Punto stops sensibly with space in front. Rover goes into the back of the Punto. Then my Rover goes into the back of the other Rover. Now, what's funny about this is straight away, um, a friend who's in the green Rover jumps out and says, no damage, no damage, everything's fine. And I'm sitting there looking at my car and my car is anything but fine. Um, what's good to know about my vehicle is that it previously had been accident repaired. Now, this had been repaired um, cheaply is probably the best way to put it. So, it, so I think what had happened is the slam panel was broken. So the slam panel is the panel at the front of the car, which goes behind the bumper, um, which I suppose is called slam for a reason. But um, yeah, that's where the headlights are kind of housed and the radio usually goes in there. Now, this car had been damaged and how they'd repaired it was that they basically pulled the front of the car out and I think replaced the bonnet with a new bonnet. But what I didn't realise is that particularly on the Rover, maybe there wasn't a lot of metal in the slam panel and um, and maybe this is why cars have plastic slam, slam panels now to prevent this from happening. But yeah, so the car had been pulled out, um, the damage had been pulled out and it cosmetically looked fine-ish but if you lifted the bonnet, there were sort of creases and I didn't really appreciate the gravity of what that meant because essentially comp the crumple zones on my car have been compromised. And so crumple zones are parts of the car that I intentionally designed to deform in an accident. And by deform, I basically mean break, but they break in a way that's safe. It means that all the energy from the crash goes, um, gets dissipated through the parts of the car which break and come apart. But um, yeah, the crumple zones have been com compromised. So all that force went straight into the same points again. And my bonnet just, I remember hitting the car in front and just watching as my bonnet gradually kind of started to rise up and crinkle and I was just like oh no and there's that horrible sinking feeling where you kind of get out of the car and my friends there shouting no damage and I'm thinking but I can see my bonnet smash up I don't know how bad the damage to the car is but it feels like it was particularly bad if you ever have hit anything in a car it feels 10 times worse than it is often I have my car and it is it smashed and it's interesting I think for some reason, I got the, the idea, like maybe I could kind of do something about this. And I basically pulled it out at the side of the road, um, on the motorway side, kind of pulled kind of as hard as I can and pushed the bonnet down and tried to kind of push it so it kind of all lined up, sort of-ish. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I was upset for the rest of that, that, that journey and the rest of that week, I think, while I tried to get the car sorted out. Um, yeah, in the end, I actually got it sorted out by taking it to a mechanic and they they were just kind of like to do this properly it's going to cost more than the value of the car but they can kind of do something so I think they undid like a bolt in the bumper and then that allowed the bumper to kind of spring back into shape and then pulled the slam panel out a little bit and kind of just basically which is shows the car must have been really weak because it it basically kind of just like manipulated it manually to make it um, all kind of line up roughly again and I think that cost it like 100 quid or something like that which was Quite cheap at the time, and I suppose I was pleased enough. Um, but retrospectively, I probably should have got that either repaired properly or kind of scrapped the car at the time. Um, obviously, we didn't want to claim each other's insurance because that would have just killed us all as newer drivers. Um, a friend in the Punta was a bit of a more experienced driver, but still, their cars weren't really damaged. There was a bit of damage to um, the back of the Rover, my friend's car, the green one, where I'd hit it. But it's more like kind of that scuff. It wasn't re it was really quite minor, and so. So seeing that he had the same car as me and he hit the car in front, seemingly got at the same speed, it's just that my car had really been 
like compromised in terms of the crush or crushable parts of the car at the front because his car wasn't damaged like my one was. So yeah, that was um that was interesting. But that's all that to say. Um, I think that this makes a strong case for new drivers doing pass plus, and it's something that I did when I did later on. Um, and I think it's really a worthwhile experience, particularly if you're someone that's going to be driving on a motorway a lot. But for all drivers that you know you've sort of learned to drive maybe in a city. And Plus Plus was really great at providing road craft. Now, I wish I could remember the name of the person I did my road, my Plus Plus with, but I remember it was a guy that was in Kingston. I remember he had a um, a one series that was like a, I think it was like a 135 diesel or something like that, but it was a pretty quick car. And the registration plate was M15UMT. And I think he said that he used to work for MI5. It was M15UMT. And I think he said that he used to work for the police or MI5 or something like that. And UMT was unusual means team. So I don't know if that was true or not, but um, I believed him. And he took me on this um, sort of evening, this day out through like the countrysides of like around, around Kingston and went to like this pub somewhere, which is a really, really nice experience actually. And I really recommend people doing it, but he's a really good guy. I wish I could remember his name and I wish I still had his details, but that was a long time ago. But um, when we went on, on this... Um, this sort of driving experience. By the time I got around to actually booking with him, I think he had changed his car from a one series to a three series convertible. And so this is really, I mean, it's really quite a cool idea. And so I think he was doing driving lessons for people in a um, three series convertible. I think it was like an E, sort of E46 model. The E46? It wasn't an M3. It was just a, a three series from that kind of, kind of, kind of era. So that was really cool because I was driving this car sort of in the countryside and with the top down and stuff. And what he was showing me was that different things about road craft. So um, one one of the things that you can do, for example, when you're on a motorway is like closing people. And so this is the idea that as you drive down a motorway and you get, um, you might come across a slow moving car in the outside lane, particularly if you're anywhere in London, people seem to not understand how the motorway works. And for some reason, everyone is obsessed with driving in the fastest lane as slow as possible while the Slowest lane seems to remain empty a lot of the time. And so one of the things that he taught me was that what you can do is if you're in the fast lane, you want to overtake someone who's driving slowly, as in significantly under the speed limit, you can drive up behind them. And maybe <laughs> this is maybe this is where sort of Audi and BMW drivers are born. But either way, basically that you um, gradually close the distance between you and the car in front. And what this should show that driver is that actually you want to pass and they will move over and let you pass. Now, sometimes this doesn't happen. So what you should do is back off. Now, for some um, BMW and Audi drivers, uh, <laughs> they seem to miss that second part and not back off when the person doesn't move out of the way or they're going over to undertake, which I don't recommend doing. But that said, um, he taught me that and I find that that generally works really well. Particularly when you get further outside of London, people seem to become more compliant and kind of understand how to use the road better. But what he also showed me was that um, really allowed me to enjoy country roads. And so if you're somebody like me who enjoys, shall we call it, spirited driving, um, and when I got the TT later on, I really took advantage of this. When you're on the country roads, he helped me to understand um, how to understand what the road was doing before you got there. And so observation is massively important when you're driving, of course. But what I understood from this was that um, if I'm driving down the road and I'm going towards... Um, I'm driving down the road, looking at where how the road meets allowed me to understand what the road was doing. And so you can look at things like um, the lines of the trees, but also the lines of lampposts and observing how they bend as you're driving down the road. But also if you're going approaching a bend and you look at the point where the two roads meet, if that point seems to kind of, that middle point seems to stay still, then you know it's going to be quite tight bending, you should slow down a lot. If that point seems to continuously move, 
then you understand that the bend is opening up or it's quite an open bend. And so what I was able to understand from that is that as I'm driving, um, it gave me a lot more confidence when being on the country road. And sometimes this can be quite a daunting thing for people who are sort of city dwellers and you don't, you're not used to driving the country roads. It feels as though um, you never know, quite know what the road's doing, particularly if you're not using um, like a certain nav. Um, but even if you are, sometimes it can be a bit uh, disconcerting. But I find it really, really reassuring to kind of be able to read the road ahead and recognise, okay, well, up ahead, maybe I see what seems like a ring of um, of lights. So it's probably going to be a roundabout. So I'm aware that it's a roundabout coming up. But as I'm kind of able to understand what the road's doing, I can drive the car, particularly if you're driving a slightly more sporty car. You can enjoy the car in a bit in, in, within the speed limit, of course. But you can enjoy the car more because you can kind of read the road and see what it's doing before you get there. You can recognize when the bend is getting a bit tighter. Oh, it's going to be a, quite a sharp bend. And so you slow down a bit more. You can see when the bend's opening up so you can get back on the power. And that was a really cool experience for me. I really enjoyed that. And so I do recommend for, even if you're not like a petrol head and you're not looking to, you know, drive in a spirited fashion through the countryside, I still do encourage um, particularly new drivers to have that motorway experience, to have someone who kind of understands the more advanced points of driving and can give you some really practical tips that can help you drive in a more efficient, efficient more effective, um, a more enjoyable manner as well. Um, yeah, so I suppose the last point I want to talk about today as we come towards the end is a point about the future of cars. And one of the things that this podcast is all about is about car culture and, um, you know, understanding what different groups of people experience and speak possibly to what the future might be for cars. As I've said in the previous podcast, I think we're at this really interesting point where um, kind of at this crossroads, petrol engines are kind of um, doing their last stunts, so to speak. They've kind of been developed as much as they're going to be developed according to many manufacturers such as Mercedes. And electric cars are becoming a more commonplace in the, um, more, more commonplace experience and a more commonplace uh, feature in our day-to-day driving. We're seeing cars charging outside the road, cars charging at lampposts, you know, going to supermarkets or um, shopping centres or, or the mall, if you call it that, and seeing that there's, you know, charging stations there. I think it's a really interesting thing. And so one of the things I do look to do with this podcast is hopefully start to speak to more people in the audience out there. So if you've got someone that you think might be quite good for this podcast, then please do share this with them and hopefully I can have a sit down with them and talk to them about their experience about sort of in the past, but also possibly the future and seeing where things are going. So whoever that might be, someone with an interesting car, someone who's maybe um, part of a car club, or if you're a car designer, if you're studying automotive engineering, or you're studying, um, I don't know, um, about cars, maybe you work in a car factory, whatever that might be. I think I'm really keen to speak to people from all different walks of life and to share that experience with people on this podcast. So um, I am considering and looking to kind of speak to some of my friends about their experiences with cars as well i think um i may have someone on the next podcast so do watch out for that that's it the future of cars i was browsing youtube as i do often and i came across someone who was 3d printing a lamborghini aventador and that really got me thinking um about the future of cars and how that future might look and what's really cool about this is that it's a sort of father and son team and i think they're one of maybe only five people in the world who are doing this and they had basically bought like a um like a sort of hobby grade or sort of like a home a kind of 3d printer that you buy to use in your house and they've got, gotten quite a 
long way with this and had to buy another one later on. But the main thing was that they were 3D printing this Lamborghini. And so they'd got a scale model. I think it was like a one-tenth scale a model of a Lamborghini. And they kind of had measured it and kind of created parts um, in SolidWorks, which is what's called a 3D um, authoring um, 3D authoring software. Basically, it's software that you can design parts in three-dimensional space in. And um, so they had been sort of measuring parts on this on this scale model and then kind of using that to help them create parts for a Lamborghini. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say is that as much as the, the whole car was 3D printed, it's a bit of a caveat in that the car sat on top of a space frame. So if you think of tubes are still welded together and it had like a, obviously an engine from, I think it was a, um, it was like an LS engine with a Porsche gearbox on it. And there's a kit you can buy, apparently. I don't know too much about it, but it did seem quite interesting. And so the base of the car is um, um, space frame, sort of kind of like a kit car you'd have, I suppose, in some ways. And then the body on top and the different parts inside have been 3D printed. Now, I think what was really cool about this um, is that this kind of got me thinking about the future where, you know, at, first, at the moment now, 3D printing technology is kind of in its... Um, still in its relatively early days it's like the early days of the internet and i think in the short term we tend to underestimate we t in the short term we tend to overestimate how much difference the technology is going to make and in the long term we tend to underestimate how much difference the technology is going to make and i think internet is a really good example of that you know when we um look at the internet we kind of saw it as being a bit of a fad it's a bit of this like kind of um this fun thing that people like send people go into chat rooms on and nerds kind of use but what we've seen internet become is woven deeply into the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives from banking transactions from youtube um to social media to emails to all sorts of things i think it's fair to say that the internet has become you know an integral part of everyone's life on a day-to-day -day basis but even if you're just a mum that lets your child watch a bunch of cocoa melon or whatever that might be um yeah it's become something that's a massive part of our day-to-day -day lives and so with this sort of 3D printing, that got me thinking, could we be facing a future where maybe there's um, 3D printing an entire car becomes possible? Maybe if not in the house, somewhere you can go, you can kind of get um, a vehicle 3D printed or maybe even get parts of your vehicle kind of 3D printed and uh, or allow that vehicle to be customised more to yourself. And I think this is interesting when you look at like how cars have been... Got somebody... Hello, how you doing? Good. Okay. Good, you? Yeah. So I think this is particularly interesting when you look at like um, how the car industry has changed in general. We've gone from a lot of manufacturers having a modest number of models. So if you look at um, Audi, for example, they only had a handful of models in the past. They had the A3, A4, I mean, they had the A2 at a point in time, but um, that wasn't that long a run. So you had the A3, A4, A6, and A8. And now if you look at the model range that Audi offers, some of them are sort of platform shared cars with other, with other marks in the Audi, the Volkswagen Audi, Vauxhall, Vauxhall? <laughs> in the Volkswagen Audi group, but um, they've got so many more cars that they offer. So you've got like the Q series of vehicles, the Q3, Q5, Q8, you've got A5, A4, A6, A8, A7, possibly even A9 in the future. But yeah, I do wonder if, just as we've kind of identified new segments of people or new types of vehicle that kind of fit specific classes of people, so whether that's a sports car or a saloon, maybe what we'll see is that our manufacturers start to offer uh, 
customers the opportunity to 3D print certain parts of their car or to customize it through the use of 3D printing. And so it's something that you see at the moment maybe with um, manufacturers use in terms of uh, rapid prototyping. So what they might do is to help them kind of in the production of cars, in addition to things like the the clay model, they also will um, 3D print components of the car to kind of allow them to test different versions of something really quickly. So for example, if you have some different ideas for headlights or taillights, you can 3D print loads of versions of those and kind of get a sense of what they look like on their vehicle quite quickly. And that's pretty cool. But I do wonder if maybe there'll be a case where um, if not 3D printing entire vehicles, maybe there's like, or maybe even 3D printing entire vehicles and there's like a licensed version that you can kind of, or licensing process you can go through. So maybe you print a part of the car and it gets certified by a company like Lamborghini and they um, allow you to say, okay, well, you've used the right resin or materials and this meets our standards. And so, yeah, this is a Lamborghini approved printed part. But it may be, and maybe you'll have like sort of, you know, if you go to like Turkey, you've kind of got, um, is it Turkey I went to? And you've got like the authentic replicas where it's like basically like, I suppose it's supposed to be high quality fakes. I wonder if that would be a thing because um, I don't know what happens when 3D printing technology becomes really cheap or becomes, starts to become really good. You know, um, at the moment there's still a lot to be done. I think the people that print that Lamborghini, they actually kind of um, sandwich some of the parts in carbon fiber to make them stronger because... 3D printed parts have something called a, uh, I think there's like a glass temperature. And what happens is if you, like with most cars, you know, you dry them outside in the sun and they're fine. But if you've got like a red car, maybe the paint fades. If you put certain types of plastic out in the car, out in the car, in the sun for a long period of time, then those can um, crack and lose their strength because of, you know, um, ultraviolet light. And so there's things that it did around that to kind of overcome that. But I think it was really cool as a experiment into what is possible when it comes to 3D printing, particularly considering that they're not using like industrial 3D printers, they're using kind of consumer grade sort of home workbench style 3D printers. Um, what was interesting about this, I think was how Lamborghini approached it. And I think Lamborghini supported this build and they um, actually featured it in like a Christmas advert. I think a Christmas advert, which I watched before this podcast. So I'll, um, I'll, send, I'll post a link to that in on this video somewhere. But yeah, that was really cool. I thought it was really cool that Lamborghini kind of supported it and did like a video around it. And I think what was really, it was almost, it was quite touching actually. Someone who's really like a car guy and seeing like that this um, 3D printed Lamborghini Aventador Roadster, um, I think it was the SV actually, but that side um, was a project that the father and son had built together. And I think what Lamborghini tapped into there for me was this idea of kind of like what um, it means to be like a petrol head and to be a car guy and as much as it is about the vehicle it's also a lot about the community and people and the experiences people have when they're driving again one of the reasons for this podcast is to tap into this this sort of idea and to investigate this more and i think it's a really beautiful example of um you know uh i think it's fair to say a luxury goods manufacturer really kind of understanding or just a manufacturer in general or company understanding people and understanding relationships and understanding um you know I think at that point, for example, that young boy, that moment is forever in his mind. In the advert, what they did was they, I won't spoil it for you, but um, you see a real Lamborghini in the advert. And I think that moment where like, he kind of looks at the car and just the relationship he has with his dad, I think that's where you know you get a true kind of petrol head is born in many ways. You know, you've created like a really memorable experience for him where he showed, he felt a great deal of love from his father and he had this experience in this car. And it's like, wow, like, this 
moment with this car meant so much more than any of the vehicles that were involved, the 3D printed one or the real one that I've seen. Um, and it's just, it's, it was interesting that I felt like Lamborghini really understood something there. And I think this is interesting because you, you contrast it with a, another company who produces supercars. And I don't say this as a criticism of them, just a comparison. Um, some Someday I would like to drive a Ferrari, so I don't want to get myself on any kind of blacklist. But um, I have a Ferrari, but that's a story for another time. Um, so Ferrari are often kind of seen in the news for writing cease and desist letters to, um, to customers even, or people that have their cars for various reasons so i think two two of the quite famous examples or well-known examples are the um dj artist music artist dead mouse so he's sort of like the guy that has the big head with the ears on he had a lamborghini i'm gonna say it's an f430 and he modified the car by changing the badge and sort of um wrapping the car with a nan cat so you're gonna have to google that but it's like this meme of this cat that is a piece of toast or something like that it's kind of like an eight-bit graphic of a cat that is a piece of toast or bread or something, and he has a rainbow flying behind him. And so he modified his car with this wrap, and he also changed the name of the car to Ferrari rather than a Ferrari, and then he changed the logo a bit as well. And so I think what's really interesting here is that um, Lamborghini kind of sent him the cease and desist, and the idea is that you know I understand you need to protect your brand, and so what they've said to him is that well we feel that this negatively affects our brand, and so we would like you to stop doing this, otherwise we'll sue you. And so Dead Mouse um, did that. And another one was, I think, the case of a fashion designer called Philip Pline. Is it Philip Pline? I'm probably saying his name wrong. But he um, posted a picture on his Instagram of a, Lamb- of a Ferrari that was green with some green shoes that he had designed that were part of his clothing brand. And so he was sent a cease and desist to um, tell him not to do that because you don't represent us, basically. And so I think this is a really interesting kind of comparison because I think it's not necessarily as much as I'd like it to be, a given that, you know, cars are forever seen as like these amazing things that people love and that the petrol heads exist forever and there's always going to be a market for the supercar i don't i don't know that that's a given as much as i would like it to be i don't know that that is a given and i think that looking at the lamborghini story although it was a couple of years ago now um i think it's really interesting that they took that route and i think that that um they're kind of opening themselves up to new audiences and i do wonder for um ferrari who i think have a slightly different kind of racing heritage and pedigree i understand there's a need for them to um to protect their brand and their brand is positioned quite differently from Lamborghini. Lamborghini's maybe seen as a bit more of a um what's the word? If there was such thing as an every person supercar or luxury brand, maybe and maybe Ferrari's a bit more elitist in some ways. I think there's debates to be had there. But I think it's just it's interesting looking at these two different approaches. So one brand's kind of a bit more embracing of things, whereas a lot of the comments on this video, interestingly, on YouTube were like, if this is Ferrari, you'd get a cease and desist. And I'm not saying that there's a right case to go for either one because for each brand, they've got different ways that they want to protect their um, product and protect their um, image. But I do think it's interesting to when you think about what the future of cars might be like, when you think about, you know, electric cars and maybe they're making um, car ownership a bit more like having a product or kind of making it a bit more faceless does do cars continue to have the same appeal in the future does everyone you know you've seen the price if you've seen the price of um sort of classic cars and classic supercars they kind of continuously go up if you want to buy um a mclaren f1 when it was new it was around a million pounds but if you want to buy a mclaren f1 today you're looking at probably in a region of 10 maybe even 20 million pounds and up 
similar sort of things for the Ferrari Enzo, La Ferrari, Porsche 918, all these sort of um, grail kind of cars and a lot of these really um, high-end supercars, their prices continue to go up. Um, P1, for example, McLaren P1. Again, the list goes on and on and on. But does that continue forever? Possibly, possibly not. I mean, everything at the moment suggests that it does. But as the way that car technology changes and maybe the ownership of cars change, does it make sense to um, continue to do things in exactly the same way? And, you know, looking at that Lamborghini um, example, um, I can't help but feel that it's a good thing that they've done there and that, um, you know, this idea of kind of introducing like a younger generation to um, cars and to like the passion and joy that you can get from cars, I think it's something that, I think it's something that manufacturers continuously need to do um, to ensure that their place is still there in the future. Otherwise, potentially maybe you risk going the way of someone like uh, Nokia or... Um, uh, blackberry where at one point you're kind of like the thing to have and everyone loves them but then um at some point you kind of seem to be less irrelevant will it happen with am i saying this will happen with ferrari i, d- I doubt it i strongly doubt it i don't i think there's enough of a, of a market there and a desire there we've got a formula one team but you know you don't no one knows for definite what tomorrow holds and so um i do think there is important that um generations get introduced to cars in ways that are are meaningful you know, we can't expect that um, everyone ends up building a car with their dad um, on their driveway. I don't think that maybe that isn't as interesting to young people as it once was. But the idea of 3D printing is this great kind of crossroads of like technology. So it's maybe more interesting to like a young person or to a really, to a really young person. And it kind of dovetailing that with cars and the excitement um, of like a supercar is a great way, I think, to introduce someone to... Um, a supercar. I think Lamborghini actually provided like a steering wheel and um, some headlights, which was really good of them. Um, I think a good example of this is like, you know, luxury watches as well. So at the moment, the market for luxury watches is quite big. It goes up and down, as does the economy. But, you know, if you've got a AP, you know, Royal Oak or a Rolex, like a, a Hulk or, or um, even a, sort of a, a, a Submariner or a Nautilus, a whole bunch, there's a whole bunch of watches, a Patek, that are only going up in value and if you can they're almost like i don't want to compare them to tr- to trainers but hear, hear what i'm saying so similar the way that there exists like a resale market for jordans so if you want to get one of these these watches or you want to get a pair of jordans you need to get the jordans when they come out to pay a reasonable price or to pay retail if you don't get them retail then resale value goes through the roof and so it's a similar thing with brands like ap rolex um uh, patek philippe if you don't, if you can buy the, if you can even get like an allocation on these watches, which is already itself really hard to get, um, then you stand to make a lot of money. You know, they their values are going through. That said, I do think that it's dangerous to assume that just because that has been the case, that that, that is always going to be the case. And I think that's important that brands do um, make efforts to introduce their products to new audiences, particularly sort of long established brands. Um, that seemingly are too, maybe even too big to fail. You know, I think something like those watch brands could do. And I saw something, someone mentioned this in the video. So there's a guy called Nico, he's a watch guy on YouTube. Um, and he spoke about this idea of like AP doing a collaboration with Casio and that this could be an opportunity for them to um, introduce like the, the watch and watch ownership to a whole new audience. And I think for something like a watch, it's really an interesting idea because, you know, um, prior to smartwatches, um, I've got Apple Watch on today. Prior to smartwatches, there there hasn't really been massive advancements in watch technology design. And so having an analog watch, for example, there is no real reason to have an analog watch. Everyone's got a phone. 
finding the time is easily available on more, on many devices. We have our phones with us all the time. And so the idea of kind of having like this analog um, watch that um, only serves one purpose. I think personally there's something really cool about that and I love watches. But to a young person in the future, will that still have the same meaning? Will, will, is there a reason to care about a watch? You know, Could, could the brand Rolex be be meaningless potentially to someone in the future possibly possibly not i don't think there's anything that suggests that is going to be the case but um i think it's important that you don't make assumptions and that brands continue to make investments in bringing their products and showing their products to a new audience and so something like that where you've got um a brand like ap collaboration collaborating with casio potentially brings this idea of kind of watch ownership and and what make what makes sort of watches special to a whole new audience and a whole new level of interest and kind of secure and guarantee their future um and so yeah i, I think that's that, that's kind of like where i'm going to end today but i do think it's a really interesting point though you know um what does the future look like for ownership what is it what does luxury mean in the future are all these luxury brands going to be viewed the same way particularly because this is a car podcast i'm talking about cars and again sometimes I talk about random things but what does the future hold? And, you know, what are brands doing today to ensure that there's still going to be an interest in their product tomorrow? You know, if people move towards Teslas and seeing cars as just being something that you own or something that you use or something you have access to, does the desire potentially start to go away for some of the rarer and more exotic vehicles? Possibly, possibly not. But either way, let me know your thoughts. Um, I encourage you to get involved in the discourse and comment on this video on youtube um i'll be doing some more things in the future hopefully with some other people and hopefully getting to speak to some interesting brands um there's an electric excuse me there's a co company that electrifies uh land rover defenders who are, have a contact at and so at some point i may have them on this podcast but i am really keen to start to talk to other people so if you do have someone that's interested in cars and i think what's really keen for me is that someone who's that passionate about them or just has an interesting story then i'm keen to speak to those people as well and so um and share this sort of idea of what car culture is and what it might be in the future with others that's it until next time take care of yourselves and i look forward to seeing you in episode or podcast number four, and hopefully having a name for this podcast. But yeah, until then, take care of yourselves and each other. That's not my sign-off. But yeah, until then, um, peace.